hard too. There's a uh, there's a disability activist, uh, Sunara Taylor, who who did a video with Judith Butler, which I, I often refer to and quite like, uh, where basically they're they're walking around and Sunara Taylor, you know, requires you know requires uh, assistance to to walk. But the point of the discussion is that everyone, in a certain sense, requires assistance to walk because uh, there's a society that's enabled that walk. So you know people are born and for a long time they're entirely dependent on others so uh so society has to you know for anyone to become able-bodied society actually has to do a lot to enable that and that's not yeah that's not just something that applies to people with specific impairments it's something that Mm -hmm. applies to to everyone you know our societies are built to to enable people to walk and some people more than others, basically. Yeah, that's what I say. <laughs> and some some radical uh, crypt theorists kind of look at it that not totally denying that, that there are any issues physically, but that it's not that we're disabled per se or completely. It's that society does not do anything to make itself society kind of disables people basically yeah even if our society does not make itself accessible it doesn't even think about how how different things could be accessible for different people it's it's completely not even a it's an not even an afterthought of when when there's city planning and and all kinds of things about where the bathrooms are going to be where the the ramps all kinds of stairs elevators all these things you know our whole society is is uh constructed in in that ableist way in an ableist bias just in the same way there's a colonial you know white supremacist you know structural bias in this society that it, it just is there it's like it's like background radiation you know, and it's just, it defines you. Just like how blackness is, is you know, whiteness is defined by, you know, turning black people into the other. And how it makes society control people and, and have a caste system and a class system, you know? It's uh, how race was invented and stuff. It, it kind of works along those same principles. But, you know, hospitals in most of our states, but especially ones such as Florida under Governor Rick DeSantis, as we like to call him, have uh, been overcrowded to the point of blocking uh, other needed hospitalizations for like cancer treatments, heart treatments and stuff for heart attacks and strokes. I mean, yeah, you can't come back later when you have a stroke or a heart attack, you know? Uh, <laughs> and, you know, bans on non-emergency surgeries. I mean, I think that's only now lifted fuck's sakes and uh the death counts you know in republican-run states has been astronomical when you look at georgia and and like alabama and places like mississippi you, you know it's just like people in missouri and that and all these places it just people are just dropping dead and they don't give a fuck and from everything i have researched you know the reason that this has played out you know, identically in multiple states is this institutional ableism that exists. 
and I think some quiet official policies some people have noticed. Uh, in the same way there is this quiet eugenics policies that have lasted so long in this country and they, they just kind of still are quietly carried out in you know, many states. I know in many states, many uh, black women, uh, when they go in to have a child, they will be given hysterectomies against their will and not know it. And often when white women try to get their tubes tied, doctors will refuse under this uh, eugenics uh, rules and thinking that, well, you might want to change your mind later, you know, because they, they don't want to discourage, you know, a, a white woman from, from having kids. And I've known at least one person that's experienced that and not from a doctor. So this, this shit still goes on. We saw how in California, the eugenics was still going on where they were sterilizing female prisoners. And there was IUD experiments under the Clinton administration done on, on uh, black girls that were telling them that, well, we'll give you more welfare money We'll give you more money if, if you let us put an IUD in your arm. And there's and then for boys, there was during that same time in the 90s, you know, there was uh, psychotropic drug uh, trials. And nothing surprises me in this. So, so like when you tell me the Maoris are skeptical of vaccines or like here, you know, like with how black people in our community are very skeptical because of the Tuskegee experiment and all this shit that's gone on. You look into the history of the foundation of, of gynecology in this country and the slave anarcha and uh, the, what the founder of American gynecology did to her and uh, how they finally removed his statue in New York and uh, the, the experiments done on slaves, you know? And uh, so, you know, at least there was a good re outreach for, for black people to not fall back on conspiracy theories and, and, and use that to not get the vaccine. That actually worked. Mm. Yeah. But it, it ended up being more white people being afraid to get the fucking vaccine for ridiculous reasons and conspiracy theories and stuff. Yeah, well, people have pointed out the uh, last big pandemic, uh, the Spanish flu here was mm -hmm. handled uh, very much in a way that was consistent with the government's basically uh, genocidal policies of, of the time. So there's there's definitely that same historical basis for, for skepticism yeah. and de there's definitely Māori leaders you know the leaders in in the Māori sovereignty movement people like Tama Iti on Harawera have taken a pro-vaccination stance and have have done done everything they can to sort of uh, communicate that uh, that that vaccination is, is is a positive thing, while still retaining you know criticisms of many aspects of how how the government operates. And the the made probably the most significant you could call Maori leader who is uh, is against vaccination uh, is Brian Tamaki, who's who's a religious fundamentalist, like a homophobic mm. religious fundamentalist. And you have some other smaller figures who are essentially cranks. And these are people who are playing on 
people's understandable concerns about about how the state does operate in an ongoing yeah. way but you know in that conspiracy theorist fashion they're sort of ta- they're taking them down a blind alley you know ta- mm-hmm. uh, playing on their reasonable concerns and and you know manipulating them into you know to mix metaphors a bit of a rabbit hole <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Well, you know what's strange is that our government, as authoritarian as it can be, they've just let people do whatever the fuck they want in this in this pandemic to the point of spreading the pandemic and letting it last longer. And and yet people have been like, no, 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 ouchie, uh, Fauci, no, you know, I don't want to stick, you know, you know, acting like they're being persecuted and shit. And it's been all voluntary at this point, even though. Ironically, the Supreme Court ruled during the Spanish flu that the government can forcibly vaccinate your ass during a pandemic. So I don't, they're so spoiled. It's just white people being spoiled. Nobody's forcing them to do nothing. And they're, they're crying like they're the victims of genocide and experimentation and, and shit like that. You know, it's just like, you can't make this shit up. But what I can't help but think of is uh, Nazi euthanasia, uh, the, their program Action T4, that killed around 300,000 disabled people. And it began as a euthanasia initiative for disabled infants who were deemed unfit for living. And then it was expanded later to include disabled adults, whether it was mental illness, epilepsy and stuff like that because I know there was an earlier one where they did sterilization based on our eugenics programs in America and so they were also targeting the the disabled and older people of course Action T4 was finally ended in 1941 after massive criticism from different quarters I, I can't imagine much of it being too ethical though (laughs) ethical criticisms but uh, Action T4 of course was a rehearsal for the Holocaust and let's face it between that and American eugenics there probably wouldn't have been a Holocaust and the victims of Action T4 turned out to help the Nazis finding innovative ways of torturing and eliminating the Jews during the Holocausts and I think that these cases that are I'm about to read sure sound like history rhyming uh, because you know I've been keeping an eye this development of uh, ignored by mainstream press stories about disabled people and how they've been faring during this pandemic which is still not fucking over people Jesus Christ I want to focus on the typical case on this typical case in particular because it sure as hell keeps coming up and it's very familiar every every time got this info from npr and it was at the start of the coronavirus pandemic a small group of disability rights activists found itself in a race against time to save the life of a woman with an intellectual disability already feeling familiar in multiple levels The woman was taken to the hospital with COVID-19, but the hospital in a small Oregon town denied the ventilator she needed. Instead, a doctor, citing her, quote, low quality of life, 
wanted her to sign a legal form to allow the hospital to deny her care. Out of that quiet fight in the early spring, the advocates staff at a disability rights legal group, a state lawmaker, and a few others discovered something disturbing. There were many cases in Oregon of health care being rationed to people with disabilities. And I kind of remember that with the whole debate over Obamacare. Oh, they're going to ration health care. Well, it was being rationed in the first place under the private system anyway. So it's not like we, we got socialized medicine here or anything. Was it Palin who claimed the UK uh, had death panels when it's death uh, panels, when the US, insu- US, the US insurance system? Yeah, mm-hmm. the US insurance system does have, have death panels. Yeah, the insurance system is the death panels, yes. And now there's even more death panels for disabled people under with COVID, unfortunately. And at the same moment across the United States, disability groups and even a civil rights office of the United States government were raising a similar warning that behind closed doors, people with disabilities as well as elderly people were in danger of being denied health care. There's no reason that these examples would occur more frequently in Oregon than in other states, but the fight for that anonymous woman with an intellectual disability peeled back the curtain on healthcare decision-making in Oregon in a way that did not happen in other states. That activism actually led to change in Oregon, so there's kind of a, a good ending to that That coverage, uh, including anti-discrimination legislation and new statewide policies. Uh, Let's see, I think it was late March 2021. This is quite recently. um, And uh, it was late March when the woman with intellectual disability contracted COVID-19. She struggled to breathe. In the hospital, a medical provider wrote, do not resuscitate DNR and do not intubate orders for the woman. Those are medical instructions to healthcare providers to withhold potentially painful interventions, like a ventilator or CPR. If a patient stops breathing or the patient's heart stops, the woman was alone in the hospital and did not understand what the doctor medical staff wanted her to agree to. And that seems to be an ongoing uh, thread here. In addition, the hospital staff sent word to the woman's group home, fill out DNRs in advance for your other residents in case one of them comes to the hospital. Okay, that's that's sus right there. People who worked with the woman were angry that the doctor and the hospital seemed to be discounting the lives of people with disabilities, and someone tracked down lawyers for help. Uh, The lawyers worked for the Disability uh, Rights Oregon uh, DRO group, a federally funded legal group that protects the rights of people with disabilities. And uh, State Senator Sarah Gessler, who chairs Oregon's Senate Committee on Human Services, was notified as well. Uh, NPR knew some details of the case in Pendleton there based on interviews with state officials, lawyers, and others in Oregon, as well as from documents obtained through a public records request. Because of privacy laws, they uh, those they spoke to could only 
gen speak generally of the case and the person involved. And uh, they couldn't confirm the gender of the person. And the thing I notice uh, in the responses from a lot of the hospitals, they take advantage of HIPAA to uh, uh, obfuscate uh, what happened <laughs> in each of these cases and deny it. And NPR knows uh, that the person was a woman because of reference in state documents they obtained. Officials at DRO said they cannot confirm the place where the case happened. State documents show it was in Pendleton, a town with one small 25-bed hospital. The report from Pendleton alarmed staff at DRO. Quote, we investigated and substantiated it, said Jake Cornett, executive director of DRO. A person with an intellectual disability was, quote, being inappropriately influenced about life-sustaining treatment. And the physician in that case talked about the, quote, low quality of life that's going to keep coming up of a person with a disability. Cornell made the same points briefly in testimony to state legislature. It, it would be one thing if these were isolated incidents, says Jake Cornett of Disability Rights Oregon. But care was being denied to people across the state, and that should raise the alarm bell. When Emily Cooper at uh, DRO learned of the disabled woman who needed the ventilator but couldn't get one, she threatened the hospital with a lawsuit. And it was up to the organization that accredits the hospital, the health authority concluded. NPR checked with the Joint Commission, the accrediting body. A spokesperson said it had not received the complaint, but as a result of NPR's inquiry, the spokesperson said it had opened a review of the incident. Nothing happened to the hospital. Nothing happened to that physician, Gessler told the NPR. The health authority confirmed that, in fact, that was a coerced do not intubate order, that they confirmed it happened, but there was no sanction. So there was no remedy, adds Gessler. This is immoral. We do not respond to disability discrimination in the way that we should. CHI St. Anthony is the one hospital in Pendleton. In a statement to NPR, the hospital said, quote, for reasons of patient confidentiality, they hide behind, we are not able to comment on any specific situation or patient. We are committed to providing compassionate and blah, 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 yakety schmackety. We are unaware of any complaints to the Oregon Health Authority, such as you have described. I'm sure they could be proven lying. NPR reached out to the disabled woman who survived COVID-19, but the woman, traumatized and confused by her time in the hospital, does not speak about it. Federal laws, notably the Americans with Disabilities Act, the one good thing uh, George H.W. Bush did in his short presidency, and the Affordable Care Act, Obama's half-assed health care measure, prohibit health care discrimination, including denial of care, based solely on a person's disability. The Office for Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services explained the law in guidance at the start of the pandemic. When care is scarce, doctors are allowed to decide who gets it and who doesn't. They can decide who is most likely to do best 
with that treatment by making an, quote, individualized assessment of the patient based on objective medical evidence. Doesn't seem very objective, though. But doctors can't rule out people because they have a specific disability. For example, dementia or using portable ventilators every day to help themselves breathe. Quote, persons with disabilities should not be denied medical care on the basis of stereotypes, assessments of quality of life, or judgments about a person's relative, quote unquote, worth based on the presence or absence of disabilities or age, the the Civil Rights Office explained. OCR issued those guidelines on uh, March 28th that year after national and state disability groups raised alarm that states had issued rationing plans that allowed discrimination against elderly and disabled people. And Oregon was one of the 29 states that issued crisis standards of care guidelines to doctors and healthcare systems about how to allot scarce medical care in case of a crisis like a terrorism event, a national natural disaster, or a pandemic. Disability Rights Oregon led a coalition of 21 state and national disability and civil rights groups and filed a complaint about Oregon's standards with OCR. The near death in Pendleton spurred the advocates to watch for other cases. One state official who handled complaints at residential facilities wrote to Gilser in April that her office had received and investigated complaints of hospitals and physicians quote, inappropriately asking people with disabilities to fill out a legal form to limit care, according to the documents obtained by NPR. Gelser heard reports of disabled and elderly people who had symptoms of COVID-19, went to the hospital, and were denied tests, treatment, or even life-saving care. Quote, we had hospitals that were trying to immediately discharge people and saying that they needed to go home for palliative or comfort care instead of actual treatment, she says. There are additional cases in the public documents collected. In April, a healthcare system in Salem, Oregon, sent a, quote, urgent message to area group homes for people with disabilities telling them not to bring residents with symptoms of COVID-19 to the emergency room unless, quote, they are so sick they require hospitalization, according to the letter. Uh, That was alarming, Gelser says, because it, quote, discounted people from bringing in clients that needed care, and it also indicated people would be discharged prematurely and into group homes that didn't have the capacity to provide appropriate care. A spokesperson for Salem Health said it had focused in early spring on being prepared to handle a large number of coronavirus cases. Quote, during the unknowns of the spring surge, this meant preserving hospital capacity for those who truly required hospital level care, the spokesperson said, adding that the system followed state and federal guidelines for best practices 
and has changed its policies as those standards have changed. Well, clearly they work. The state records that uh, NPR obtained show other people with disabilities were denied coronavirus tests or treatment when they showed up at hospitals with symptoms. Sarah Frazzini, the executive director of Benco, a nonprofit agency that provides housing and other services to people with disabilities, points to the story of one of her residents. On April 2nd, the 64-year-old man was running a high fever and staff at his group home worried that he'd contracted COVID-19. They took him to the emergency room at Good Samaritan Regional Medical Center in Corvallis. The man has a significant intellectual disability. He doesn't speak words. He's quadriplegic. He can't swallow and is fed through a tube. Medical staff in the emergency room refused to test him for the coronavirus. Frazzini told the story to NPR as well as to state lawmakers at the, at the June hearing. It would be a waste of valuable PPE, they said, or personal protective equipment, a member of the medical team said angrily in front of the man, according to Frazzini. At the time, there were shortages of PPE in Oregon and nationwide. He was eventually tested after staff worker for the agency that ran the man's group house insisted. The man was admitted to the hospital, but it turned out he had pneumonia, not COVID-19. But again, for people who have a compromised immune system, pneumonia might as well be COVID. When after six days he was discharged, Frazzini said in the hearing and to NPR, a physician in an online call made a recommendation the group home should stop the man's care and nutrition and begin end-of-life hospice care. Okay, that's fucking scary. According to Frazzini, the doctor said the man with his multiple disabilities had a, quote, low quality of life. The staff member who worked for him was furious. This man was not dying. His condition was the same as before he'd entered the hospital. He'd lived this way for years. Frazzini says her staff felt the doctor had seen a man with significant disabilities and had made a judgment that his life didn't matter. The man is in, a, is in good health today. He lives in his group home and spends days in his favorite recliner, watching his favorite superhero movies and enjoying the brightly colored tropical fish in his large aquarium. See, this is what I've been saying that uh, about... I mean, I mean, compromise that it doesn't necessarily mean you're not going to live a long life or not going to, you know, uh, ha have the experiences that other people have. It just means you're particularly susceptible. It, and it means that yeah. if people are willing to put you more at risk, then, you know, that will that that will have more consequences for you. It doesn't. Yeah. So so that uh, that. That comment, which I quoted, which which sort of said, well, the people who are going to die soon anyway. I mean, I would disagree, even if that was the case. But it's it's also a total misconception about what what I mean it means. It doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean that you you know that you have no life ahead of you. It just means you're you're at greater risk, you know. And I think I think that's a yeah. common misconception. But yeah, yeah, it's just that things like the flu and pneumonia 
are like kryptonite, you know, <laughs> and you're, you're doing good until those things hit you, you know, and you have the potential to get really sick and possibly die, mm. but not every time. Yeah. And just the fact that, you know, all it, all it requires is like maybe one jab a year and putting a slightly mm-hmm. inconvenient mask on and that could make the difference between someone living a, a long, you know, not necessarily always happy. Nobody has an always happy life, but, you know, it could make, be the difference between someone living for decades and dying in, in a week. So that conception that immunocompromised means you're not going to live a long life is, is just not accurate. It just means you're particularly susceptible. And I think people, aside from the ugly the social Darwinism, they yeah. also need to get that in their heads. Uh, yeah. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, when, when did it become such a, a hard thing that, like George Costanza says, we live in a society that you you, you can be selfless for, for strangers and other people in society as a whole, that you, you don't crash society, you don't make everybody sick and die because you're a selfish asshole and vice versa. Everybody fucking wins. It's just so, wow. I guess it's just very American. And, and I guess we're exporting it to all the other countries. Well, it's very capitalist. Uh, and America is just the, and I think each bomber guy had a really good history of the guy who invented the anti-vaxxer shit politics. There's, there's a lot of blame that, zeroes in right to there out of that moment and trying to blame vaccines you know for autism and stuff and it you know led to this and uh we're paying for it literally with with thousands of people dying because we allowed stupid ideas to fester that's why to me x-files isn't so uh quirky and funny anymore with the conspiracy theories and shit you know I mean, you look at QAnon and stuff and how that's merging with the turf stuff that Jews and uh, the Soros and the uh, medical industry and Big Pharma and and stuff have invented, you know, trans people to um, create transhumanism is what I was trying to say. And so that we, we stop being attached to our bodies and they have this obsession with body autonomy, just like the vaxxers. And it connects back to that, that somehow there's this conspiracy by the government, by the Illuminati, by whoever, that's trying to make us not be attached to our bodies, that drives the sovereign citizen types nuts. And they think that like the world government's gonna not just put a stamp on her forehead, but for the beast, but uh, download our brains into robot bodies and and, uh, turn us into cyborgs and shit. I had not heard this said seriously until Charlie, uh, what's his name? The guy with the small face that works for the the think tanks there that he he, he went off on on a coke fueled rage on stage where he was ranting about how trans people were getting us ready to accept transhumanism and cyborg bodies and shit and he was fucking dead serious and it turns out this comes from some deep green resistance uh, turf and it's like these things aren't funny anymore 
all these conspiracies. I, I kind of have a hard time enjoying that uh, show on Netflix, that cartoon with the conspiracies. Deep, Cognito deep, Inc. Deep. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, because it's like, this, this shit's deadly. And mm. th- these people are so evil at this point. And, and it's like, these doctors, I mean, we've seen how there is the, you know, medical racism that, and it's very high in the medical schools they found and where they've seen that medical students and doctors, you know, they think black people can take more pain and they, they often in hospitals, they, they give black people less painkillers because of these false racist beliefs. And, you know, you have more black women dying in childbirth when we also have an overall way too high child birth death rate in the first world in the first place but black women are over represented because of the racism in this society and and then you, you see that how this goes with disability and it's like where where's the uh hippocratic oath to you know doctor do no harm heal thyself i mean this this place is literally called samaritan health services and, and they're they're trying to do eugenics on, on the Nazis and euthanasia and shit on uh, the disabled. But I'm sure it's probably a religious hospital or, or something. And if, if this was actually about people having the right to end their lives, they'd probably be against it. Or if it was people trying to have the right to an abortion, they'd probably be trying to stop them. So it's just like, make up your fucking minds, people. And these these documents just show they're fucking lying their asses off and they're hiding behind HIPAA. And there's another case, this lady, Sarah McSweeney, her guardians, again, felt pressured. And, you know, all these these places, all these caregivers, these people are separated from their caregivers and then they're pressured to sign a document that they did not understand because they have mental or intellectual disabilities. And, uh, you know, so this McSweeney, before she went to the hospital, she lived at a group home and they used to take her to the shopping mall and get her hair done and stuff. And the the 45-year-old woman had multiple disabilities. She was quadriplegic. So staff at her group home in uh, Oregon City pushed her in a bright pink wheelchair. Uh, She couldn't swallow. So the direct service professionals, the caregivers of the group home, fed her through a gastronomy tube that sent nutrition directly to her stomach. She couldn't speak words, but the people who worked for her could understand her by her sounds and facial expressions. Sarah McSweeney had a big personality and, and they said she was like full of life. And, you know, even though she had all these medical issues, she was vivacious. She just lived her life said Heidi Barnett, who worked with her. And, you know, you were blessed if you got to meet her. And so Barnett works for the ARC Oregon and its guardianship program. And she helped McSweeney make decisions about her life and health care. And she helped McSweeney draft the legal document that went with her to the hospital. It said that she wanted full medical care. And it was so fucking hard to understand. But after McSweeney went to the hospital on April 21st with a high fever, doctors and social workers called Barrett, who wrote up detailed notes of these calls 
and tried to get her to accept a do not resuscitate order for McSweeney. And tests showed McSweeney did not have COVID-19, but in the hospital she had episodes of aspiration pneumonia, which is lethal, when fluid backed up into her lungs. In the hospital, a doctor told Kimberly Conger, the nurse manager from Community Access Services, which ran the group house where McSweeney lived, that she needed to be on a ventilator. Quote, we discussed the possibility of her being intubated and to letting the lung rest, giving her time to heal and letting the antibiotics do their magic, said Conger. But then the doctor questioned whether it was worth doing, citing McSweeney's quality of life. Conger says she objected to that. And he looked at me and goes, oh, she she can walk and talk? Uh, she says the doctor asked, moving his fingers in the air in a walking motion. Uh, Conger replied, there's a lot of people who don't walk who have full quality of life. McSweeney was not moved back to the ICU and was not put on a ventilator. She died on May 10th of severe sepsis because of aspiration pneumonia, which is fucking avoidable. Mm. And, you know, it goes case after case of yet another pressure to force people to sign DNR orders. And there's another case of another client that Barnett had after McSweeney's death, who was a 77-year-old man with an intellectual disability who contracted COVID-19 and went to another Oregon hospital for treatment. But she says a doctor there, acting unilaterally, reversed the man's legal order for full treatment. You know, I, I love how contracts are so sacred to capitalists and, and to our society as a whole, you know? And, but, like, they always love, love to break them on you when you're weak. <laughs> Mm. You're the little guy, you know, your, your contracts can always be broken. When uh, Barnett and the man's advocate objected, she says the doctor stood firm, saying the man who was diabetic and intellectually disabled was, quote, too difficult to treat. Well, you know, it's too difficult not to fucking shoot this goddamn doctor. I'm sorry, but what the fuck? Yeah, it's your job. Too <laughs> difficult to treat which part the diabetes explaining shit to them because you 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 don't want to talk to somebody who has an intellectual disability is may you may have to tell them a couple times i mean what the fuck and you know it was like barnett was just absolutely it was absolutely flooring to me i mean the man survived thank god and returned home you know one of the most common causes of poor care occurred when someone who had difficulty communicating or had dementia went to the hospital alone. Family and advocates were barred, and for the most part, from visiting, even when the person depended on them to communicate. This was my experience as well. And I swear they were doing this to us on purpose with my mom. You know, they made it difficult to get through to anyone on the phones or anything and this you know to talk to the nurses you know you try to they say oh they're between shifts or you know call back at a different time you know you couldn't get through to the doctors and you just play phone tag for like 15 hours 
in the day. And, you know, they, they acted like my mom was abandoned and had no advocates, you know? When, like, me, I, and cousin, her cousin, and other people were medical surrogates, you know? And we were trying to clear the paperwork of definitely clearing, the, making it clear that, you know, we were uh, medical surrogates and stuff. And my mom was able to speak for herself, but, you know, they, they took her tiredness and, and being on all these drugs and shit and COVID and an MS uh, brain fog and all this shit they decided well she she must have uh, dementia so now she has to if once she gets over the COVID she's going to have to go to a, a, a nursing home or something even, even though that's not what she wanted and that was not in her, her plan of care with her social workers through Medicaid and stuff and she expressed to us she did not want to go to a nursing home to die. You know, they were trying to, to push her against her wishes. And no doubt, you know, it would have been one of the hundreds of uh, nursing homes that this corrupt and abusive chain controlled in our state. Uh, I think they own, they control about uh, maybe 800 or so. I mean, that's a lot of fucking facilities. And, uh, you know, I did some, some digging and their franchises were notorious for abuse, neglect, not listening to family members like we experienced. And they got in a lot of trouble for Medicare fraud and they've since had to change their name. But, you know, the law here in Florida is no matter what you do to your patients in a nursing home or if you kill your kids in a boot camp or something you just get to change the name of the of the facility you don't have to do anything you don't lose your incorporation rights and stuff like that it's pretty sickening here and you know they exploited the fact that i could not visit this covid quarantine you know because of my immune system you know i wasn't recommended that i go there either because there were so many people there and staff that were contaminated and so like everybody was on like five day ten day whatever quarantine and shit you know so it's like it wasn't like i could just walk into the, the viper's den of the virus you know and uh not get sick so i'm at home waiting to to be tested myself you know that month she was in there was uh it's pretty frightening for her and for the rest of us i think i held up pretty good but doing stuff around here myself and trying to pay the bills and do the groceries and stuff like that around here. But, you know, we didn't know if she was going to die or survive and be sent to a death sentence in a COVID-filled nursing home where nurses are allowed to refuse vaccines and testing. You know, it's just none of us wants that shit. And they get you in this situation if you're the patient that's why i was afraid for myself too because i'm like well shit if i end up in, if i end up sick my mom's stuck here i'm stuck in the hospital nobody's going to speak for me i was lucky at least when i was in the hospital in july that you know i was able to to talk to the, to my mom and other people and and talk and advocate for myself that they didn't try to you know try to isolate me 
and stop me from making medical decisions and shit. But like, what if I had gone unconscious or gotten into a, a coma or something, you know, and they couldn't get through to my mom or somebody, you know, it's, it's pretty fucked up right now. And the whole thing with COVID that's been so the, the scariest is that people couldn't get visitors. One Oregon doctor who asked to remain anonymous in order to speak freely told NPR about a teenage girl with significant disabilities who was on a ventilator with COVID-19 in the ICU at his hospital. She had difficulty speaking and typically relied on her mother to communicate for her. The hospital arranged a video conference, which shouldn't be fucking hard in this day and age, since everything's done on Skype and uh, Zoom, that they they wanted to, to talk to them about ongoing care. But when the young woman saw her mother's face on the computer screen, she sobbed uncontrollably. It was heart-wrenching, the doctor told NPR. Eventually, the mother was allowed to visit. So it's like, that's something I was wondering about, too. The whole time I couldn't get in touch with anybody. You, you can't Skype? I mean, why, why are these facilities so goddamn expensive, but they can't use Zoom for the doctor to talk to you and shit like this? Because, you know, when you end up in jail, the county jail and shit like that, and you're in prison and all that, they sure as hell can have video phones and video conferencing so you don't have to go anywhere to court. So, so it's very frustrating. And so this... This Oregon law, Oregon lawmaker, uh, Gelser, introduced a bill to guarantee that people with disabilities get equal care in hospitals during the coronavirus pandemic. She wrote and co-sponsored an anti-discrimination bill, Senate Bill 1606. It bars doctors from forcing a do not resuscitate or do not intubate order on disabled or elderly patients, either as a condition of being admitted to the hospital, that's one way they get you, or as a condition for treatment. It requires doctors to honor a person's medical orders for care. It allows people with certain disabilities to have a family member or other support person with them during a hospital stay to help explain their medical choice. That is phenomenal. That that such an improvement right there. One little thing. And uh, the, that legislation passed the legislature and Oregon Governor Kate Brown signed it into law. And Gelser said uh, she was surprised that one section of the bill turned out to be controversial. Language said doctors and healthcare providers could not discriminate on the basis of disability was stripped from the bill. Hmm. Health officials worried that the language was too vague and would interfere with individual decision-making. That's quite something. Like the the That's simple America. explicit, yeah, the simple explicit statement uh, that you can't discriminate apparently too vague like that seems like a very clear statement to me you know yes applying it you know you might have to figure out what's the best way to apply it but the fact that the general principle was considered uh contentious i think that's that's very telling but yeah it's not vague they're lying because all you got to do is look at the guidelines and the words the language of the ada and the uh 
office of uh, the, the one uh, anti-discrimination one for disabilities in the HHS. It literally says that you cannot discriminate on the basis of disability. And it goes into specifics of what it means by that. So all you have to literally do is put a, either put an asterisk right there to make it less vague if it's supposedly vague, or just say, in line with existing federal law, anti-discrimination law. And that's the problem with the American Dis Anti-Discrimination Act, is that uh, the ADA, unfortunately, the, the compromise of getting it passed they got it's it's probably one of the most successful bills that that any kind of civil rights lobby or group could have got that have gotten passed like in probably since the civil rights act and nothing good since has been really done unfortunately that was kind of the peak and still in order to get it passed what was missing was a uh, a mechanism for enforcing the ADA all the other anti-discrimination statutes and laws where you can't discriminate against people in segregation and race and everything, by default, it's the law. It doesn't have to have teeth. It, its teeth is, it, it are there in the, in the bill itself, in the law itself. The ADA doesn't have teeth. You have to, you have to bring a case and prove that the other person was actively trying not to comply. And you have to prove it maybe two or three times that they were not trying to put a ramp or comply in any other way. And it's bullshit. If anybody else was just any other protected group was being discriminated like, like this, that where it's covered, you don't need that mechanism for, for being able to... Uh, make the law work and it's just it's insane that you know that well that's the, dis the disabled you know they they throw you under the bus and and it, it literally and that <laughs> and figuratively in that in that regard that they they give us a really good anti-discrimination law that that can't carried out you know can't done so really what it's what worth does it have because people because it means that people can still discriminate against you if you're disabled so that's why any anti-discrimination bill on uh, gender and sexual sexuality sexual orientation and and getting the uh, ERA and all these things they have to have these kinds of mechanisms for for being able to ha have teeth in the courts or they're they're going to be worthless because you're not going to be able to assert your rights the second you're discriminated against and that is a major problem so this this was uh i've been able to find some articles on this stuff from different places uh this has been uh npr has been pretty have been pretty good coverage on this and I think Business Insider, of all people, they've had really good coverage of weird things going on like this, of, of uh, disabled people getting screwed over under COVID. And I just, you know, you don't see much of, you know, much of this stuff on TV or anything. And you don't see it being addressed very much on C-SPAN or anything by, by politicians. 
in any active federal legislation or anything. And, and that I find very frightening, especially with all the COVID relief and stuff that that was done that ended up being very paltry and uh, means tested, of course, that was was done by the Biden administration. And they allowed our states to steal all the money, essentially. And uh, the only way you could collect for, for most of these uh, not losing your home, your rent help, that had to, you had to be able to actively file for it. You had to know what website to go to, where to, you know, what government agency to file with, do it in time, you know, and it was like they, they did this on purpose. Most of the people I know in, in my state were not able to get unemployment because under Rick Scott, they intentionally built an unemployment website that did not work just so people could not file and get unemployment. I shit you not. They sabotaged the website. And most people in Florida, by the time they were able to get, you know, some kind of proof that they, that they were unemployed, they needed unemployment. They either, it ran out, it was ended, you know, after, you know, the COVID relief was ended. So, and so there was a whole, I don't know how many people in this state were not able to collect on disability. I mean, uh, collect on unemployment under the entire period that that this uh, pandemic's been going, and they lost their jobs. And then now, so many people are fucked because the child tax credit was allowed to end, and now our our uh, food prices are through the roof. And something else I'm going to get into is is housing and uh, how that's been allowed to go down the toilet. Because I think it's the same as, as what you described in New Zealand, uh, the, the housing housing problem here and, and like this housing bubble. And what we're seeing is this housing bubble is being driven by, by uh, private equity firms like BlackRock Capital or equity and buying up all the houses and becoming uh, landlords. And uh, Russian and Chinese uh, oligarchs and gangsters and shit are laundering their money by buying houses in our real estate, driving up the prices that people can't afford to live anywhere. I live in a state that it's it's actually un- it's pretty much un- unaffordable for, for for any working class person to pay for rent. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Well, New Zealand, last I heard, had the second fastest growing property prices in the world. So, so that certainly is a parallel here. But yeah, yeah, Tampa had the highest in the country. I was like, God damn it! Why? Do I, why, why? Why? I could live anywhere in the country. Why? Why is it this the place where I am? <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is this is not good. I think the the major thing, the big takeaway and why Obamacare was such a problem and why that was a a moment where they they should have, while the iron was hot, struck while the iron was hot, pushed through some kind of, you know, know, Medicare for all or something that, uh, because given that so much of our, the working class's finances is gobbled up in uh, paying off medical debt and everything. And then uh, a pandemic hits, stupid. It's just like it's just like having the Brexit right before this. But yeah, they, they this triage care stuff, they're at least going to change it and that they can't do this. 
But the fact that they were doing it before, and something that I looked into was that at least they were having some hearings at Harvard and at Tufts, I think, a couple places, where they were trying to hammer out the medical ethics of COVID. And I was th- and I was noticing, I was like, wait a minute. I thought that before. I was like, you know, this far in to the pandemic, they don't have the medical ethics of how to treat all the different people that get infected. There's there's no ethical there's no ethics policy. I mean, we know that that was obvious under Trump, but the hospitals didn't come up with anything. Yet what they did come up with was was this uh, triage shit. So this is very interesting, very scary. It's taking this long to get into uh, to worrying about the ethics of this, and it's like, well, again, what what about the uh, Hippocratic Oath and shit? Don't, don't you work forward from there? So at least these changes in Oregon have brought about uh, evolution of better guidelines in other states as well, and. So now state and national disability groups have uh, brought complaints to the Office for Civil Rights at the Federal Department of Health and Human Services, who enforces the anti-discrimination laws in healthcare. And, and again, we have a disability law with no enforcement. But the, uh, the Office for Civil Rights has announced its own settlements with several states to rewrite their crisis standards of care. Tennessee and Pennsylvania agreed to quit letting doctors use quality of life scores to determine who gets scarce care. Connecticut agreed to let family members into hospitals to help people with disabilities who have difficulty communicating. And Utah agreed to bar doctors from issuing blanket do not resuscitate orders. So NPR asked, you know, there was one lingering question in all these cases. Why was care rationed to people with disabilities at a time when Oregon's hospitals were not overcrowded, when there were no shortages of treatment? And they, the governor announced that Oregon in that early April was sending 140 ventilators to hard hit New York. But it's like, you're sending ventilators out of state at a time when you, you, you could be uh, helping people in your own state like this, where the weakest, the least of us and, and everybody, you know, it's like, oh, nobody needs it. It's just the disabled. So they said, you know, if there's no shortage, why were McSweeney and the woman in Pendleton denied ventilators? Uh, Gelser, who has an adult son with an intellectual disability, thinks she has an answer, that there has always been a bias against people with disabilities in the healthcare system, she says, and it was largely hidden. The coronavirus made it visible, and then the virus made it worse. And I think that sentence can be applied to a lot of problems in our society. And COVID has put a giant magnifying glass on the inequities in healthcare delivery for people with disabilities, And for the first time, we see in a more pressing and public way how deadly that can be. In the pandemic, doctors worried about potential shortages for some made decisions to deny care to others. 
So before we even needed to triage, she says, medical systems were deciding on reserving resources for non-disabled people that the system valued more in case they ran out of resources later. And I think that goes into your point before about intentionality and uh, neglect. I think this is neglect and consequentiality. They didn't have to plan it to do it on purpose to be evil and kill disabled people by policy. It's the system. And this new study is urging that ERs bring in advocates to close the healthcare gap. And so that's that's gonna gonna help. And uh, there's also a new paper from the University of Georgia that suggests, as the state senator said, that unconscious biases in the healthcare system, obviously, may have influenced how individuals with intellectual disabilities were categorized in emergency triage protocols. The state level protocols, while crucial for prioritizing care during disasters, frequently allocated resources to able-bodied patients over ones with disabilities, the researchers found. So bump, 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 bump. So there you go. It's it was proven in in consequence, experience, and and in studies. And and we we saw. I mean that you know we saw how uh, how that was done. And it's, it's I think that's quite frightening. And uh, as a disabled adult, you, you know you kind of see you know your value to society and how expendable you are. And it's uh, well, that's very. Yeah, you know, as as a multiple times over marginalized person or minority, you know, you, you get to see how many different ways your country or your society devalues you for the different categories that they can apply to you, and it it, it really does something for your for your self esteem, I think, and uh, that's not I don't think that's dealt with enough in this society. Yeah, one part uh, in this this piece on the uh, UGA study, again, you know, the uh, the one guy was talking here, this, uh, this doctor that was part of the study was saying that, uh, I don't know if he's like trying really hard to not blame while being systemic, but, uh, you know, I get what he means, but, you know, he says that yeah, he makes a really good uh, recommendation here. This other guy felt who did the study. He's saying that uh, people in medical school and other medical education curricula uh, for training should incorporate uh, how to work with individuals with disabilities, which which the UN and the WHO makes a suggestion of as well. And uh, it, it's amazing this isn't even covered. And, uh, but he's saying how this could go a long way in closing the gap in care. And he also was, was trying to figure out how to do bias and discrimination trainings in coursework. And he was just so shocked to learn that his clinical education didn't even cover the topic. And it's like, what, what the fuck do they teach in, in medical school that takes so long and, and uh, costs so much? You know, even mention this shit. You know, I feel like this should be a foundational class, she said, 
uh, that's something that definitely needs to change. Adults with disabilities are significantly more likely to have comorbidities such as heart disease and diabetes. In the case of COVID-19, those conditions were considered risk factors for poor outcomes, relegating these patients to the bottom of care hierarchy. Again, hierarchies, fuck you. To compound the problem, COVID-19 hospital protocols that banned visitors, again, like we said, shut out advocates and family members. So they're saying that turned deadly and that should be turned around as per the UGA study. And is saying that with ableism, it's so ingrained into the healthcare system that it's definitely a bias that a lot of people have. And sometimes people don't even recognize it. And they're saying that uh, this Kurt Harris, who was uh, the corresponding author of the paper and director of the Institute for Disaster Management in UGA's College of Public Health, stressed that this research isn't an attack on clinical providers though I think it is, who have shouldered an enormous burden throughout the pandemic. It says, quote, I do not believe clinicians are deliberately doing this, he said. I just don't think they have been given the requisite education needed for population level health issues, nor is it easy for clinicians to reconcile what constitutes high quality of life for patients with intellectual disabilities. This is more of an educational opportunities, opportunity for clinicians to recognize that an issue exists and begin to make systemic changes so we do not re- repeat the same mistakes in the future. So what do, you, what do you think about that? That the fact that this is systemic, it's a systemic problem, needs systemic changes. Uh, I mean, I don't really, I'm not sure I really have all that much to add, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> but you know i think that like with climate change and other things i think that's like one of the things that, that like our government can't do especially quickly you can't radically uh address systemic problems and solve them. you know and our senate is made definitely to nip those in the bud and our government doesn't work that way so it's like it was good that that what happened in oregon led to the reforms that it did and those reforms caught on in other states but it should it shouldn't have happened for that to 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 come to those those uh conclusions to to get to that point and yeah um and i think these are these are good things to be pushing for i guess uh there is just the underlying like question mm-hmm. of of why these biases exist you know much like mm-hmm. much like with racism that uh you know that the bias isn't the start it's it's in a way the outcome of of what's systemic uh and i would say in the case of of disability it's that it's that in a capitalist society that that disabled people are there there's an assumption that people are are worthwhile insofar as as they are productive basically and disabled people are seen as unproductive so even though you know people could still live a full long life while while having a disability or being immunocompromised there's an idea that that life can be can be sacrificed you know that it's that it's worthless 
but yeah um yeah yeah uh, and the, the other thing i was thinking was that how um like with racism ableism is about the disparate uh and uh it doesn't matter that somebody's a racist or has racist attitudes or somebody's a bigot an ableist and does these things on purpose doesn't want to have ramps like Clint Eastwood. It's the fact that our, our system is structured this way and favors their behavior to be that way. And 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 for the disabled not to be taken into account, really. And that that's the problem. And it's like that's those why questions that, you know, makes you see a lot of of the uh of the how, well, how the sausage is made in society, you know why why things are the way they are, and I I think when you don't have or at least you give people a non-conspiratorial lens or explanation for politics and how the world works, it's it's very radicalizing because you, you, it's it's pretty obvious too about why are things the way they are economics are political decisions mm. economic decisions are political decisions they choose the politicians and the system the economists to do things the way they are done it's not that natural law is a thing or yeah that, none of this none of this yeah. is inevitable yeah yeah, yeah. and that you know, none of this is inevitable or a law of nature or anything. It's that they choose. And it's like, the more you look at it, it's like, why? Why? Why does it have to be that way? And I think that what it helps on the left is to, to give out alternative uh, visions of the future based on asking why the hell it is the way it is now, how it shouldn't be, how it could be better, indifferent and uh, i don't think that's necessarily utopian in the uh, star trek way <laughs> you know in the 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 um, wide-eyed uh, navel gazing way but i think that's utopian in a kind of building the future of the shell of the old kind of way you know of uh, of, of kind of prefigurative politics that that can uh, maybe build something you know out of uh showing that well okay, we can get some of these reforms like we saw how, okay, some of those reforms were possible there. But, like, even if we got a bunch of reforms on the healthcare end, okay, that definitely will help people on, on debt and all these things. But as long as healthcare is is a economic commodity under capitalism and not a right, we're still going to come back to a lot of damn problems all over again. And I think we're going to keep finding that in every single issue we look at, whether it's hunger, whether it's homelessness, whether it's that, whether it's prison, police, you know, all these things have a radical systemic analysis mm. of looking and, at them and a solution. 
Yeah, and like New Zealand, which, you know, as I mentioned, has a public healthcare system, uh, it's definitely it's definitely better than it is in the USA where it's where it's commodified. Mm-hmm. But you still have the issue of, you know, when the system is squeezed, who whose needs are prioritized kind of thing. Yeah. And and it's also like the public healthcare system is, has long been grossly under resourced in, in recent decades. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's uh it's it's about uh, enabling uh, enabling everyone to live, you know, a full long life, uh, regardless of whether whether they're considered to meet some standard of, of of say a productive citizen or you know or or some externally judged uh, notion of of what a what 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 a quality of life is. I guess I don't know. Sorry, I'm losing losing track of them. Yeah, we have the right to all of these things, and even it's recognized, and even it's even it codified and recognized in the UN Declaration of Human Rights. But the the issue is, our governments will not implement them. Mm. You know, as far as the right to healthcare, the right to to work, the right to unions, the right to to eat, eat you know, eating, the right to education, the right to mm. housing and, and stuff like that help and but it's like i th- i think we we see the utility of these things i know as an anarchist that you know you you, you kind of you have rights as much as you you know the government lets you but i, I think that we we see and i think COVID has stripped away the last bit of scales over people's eyes or whatever you say that of the illusions of the american dream and crap like that and the ideas of uh, the Calvinistic uh, Protestant work ethic and all this shit. And, you know, it's been projected that the end of rent assistance by the government here is is putting 6 million people conservatively at risk of homelessness. And instead of focusing on this uh, in the press and the root causes and how COVID makes this worse and stop siding with fucking landlords and sound solutions. The media, you know, they all sound a lot like Fox News right now about the garbage and and human waste created by people living on the street or something. And, you know, the talk coming from the new fascist mayor of New York, who used to be in the NYPD, is very troubling and uh, very disturbing when I hear it. And he blames the mentally ill for all the violence in the city and homelessness. And, uh, you know, he's making a call quite nakedly for a return to involuntary institutionalization, which I find very frightening. And that keeps being brought up as an answer to shootings. I know Trump did. And Obama brought us one step closer to that by weakening your protections of patient doctor uh, confidentiality with your shrink. And instead of complaining about human waste on sidewalks as if they cared about the, the houseless, you know, they should ask. And, you know, everybody should ask why there are no homes, why there are no public restrooms for everyone in the richest country in history. So, you know, the second you look at it, well, there's no excuse. We have the fucking answer. And, you know, it's like they, they need to stop scapegoating mental illness for everything. But they definitely need to stop scapegoating mental illness and addiction as they are right now. 
since they plan to do nothing about neither of those, and they're just exploiting it to bring back forced institutionalization. And after all, if millions of families are being made homeless because of COVID relief ending, how the fuck did mental illness or addiction play the root cause there? Doesn't hold up. Capitalism, government, real estate, and landlords are the root cause. Mental illness and addiction are more often symptoms of living on the street rather than the other way around, according to most legitimate studies. Look it up and you think about it. I drink hooch and do heroin too. If you make me live on the street and take my shelter, structure, food, security, and meds. These are real problems needing solutions, but think tanks and the media are trying to create a straw man version of the problem in need of an authoritarian fake quote unquote solution that further criminalizes the poor, houseless, mentally ill, disabled, addiction to further excuse expanding involuntary detention and not ending the failed drug war. Because I think just when you see that, that marijuana is being decriminalized so many places, and we're hearing about federally decriminalizing uh, marijuana and uh, mushrooms keep getting legalized in every other state, I, I find it interesting that they're finding other reasons to, to expand involuntary detention. You know, so for every one thing they they legalize, they come up with other shit to throw you in jail for. And, you know, speaking of prisons, since they have gone completely forgotten in the coverage of COVID, and they are death camps at this point, with psychi- as are psychiatric institutions and nursing homes being little different. And these facilities are death sentences at this point. And uh, I, I fear for anybody who ends up at any of these places even if you're just like in jail for a little while and you get bail that could be a death sentence right there just as much as uh being put on a a 48 hour or 72 hour psych watch or whatever at a at a institution that's like catch covid and die yeah i i think the meme we live in a society is kind of relevant here like i think seeing that we're all interdependent we're all dependent to one degree or another so you know as we said like we're we're born and you spend the first part of your life completely dependent on other people and as as a pandemic breaks out that much more people become vulnerable and we we need to move move away from the idea that there's just you know that there's just a few a few people who are sucking up resources or some such actually we have a society that that enables some people greater greater capacity greater movement you know greater resources than others that's not that's not something innate to people that's uh that's to do with how society is structured and you know a society that that recognizes our 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 interdependence and the fact that you know that we are strengthened by our relationships with others by our by our capacity to nurture and be nurtured you know that's that's the direction 
we need to head in and not not one of valuing lives based on how productive they are for a minority of of people benefiting but yeah yeah and i'd like to end with just pointing out that if you don't think you're going to be disabled just wait yeah at some point especially if you're in the working class back back injuries back pains is one of the main and repetitive work injuries is the main forms of disability yeah and the longer they work us people are going to get disabled at some point in their life and over one billion people live with some form of disability in the world yeah even without capitalism if you live a long life you'll eventually become dependent on others again you know as you as you were when you were born so yeah that that sort of recognition needs needs to be the starting point that we're all we're all interdependent so if so if you like what we do please contribute to our patreon at patreon.com slash jetpack 1917 uh good night and good luck and see you in the future Saturday morning, I take a turn at the skillet. I burn some eggs, boil coffee, drink a cup, then refill it. I read some pages of the paper, mostly look at the pictures. There's a drip at the faucet, so I fumble with the fixture. We take our own showers, wash our own hair, make our own beds, push in our own chairs. I thought all this stuff would get done for me. A robot mows along while I sit under a tree. I thought we'd control wind and rain, cure all sickness, eliminate pain. I wouldn't mind reading gadgets to cater to my wishes. Want a self-cleaning kitchens and not sticking dishes. Where's the end of all disease? Where's the milk and honey? See the sea and where all the Crime-free cities, rockets on the backs of where all the stupid sidewalks. Hey, where's my jet? On the table at 6.45 Rocket to the moon and race right Back to my holograph And my new jet backpack I was gonna watch your dreams On a flush mounted giant plasma flat screen We were gonna live forever With a wish and a pill And the pull of a lever Earth in a God-free zone Where we all get along and no one's alone A paradise of plenty where nobody lacks We all flying around with our own jet packs Where's the end of war? Freedom from disease Where's the milk and honey? You see the shining sea How come there's Rats in my kitchen, monkeys on my back. Where are all the monorails and sky trams? Where's my jet? Heaven on earth 
in a God-free zone where we all get along and no one's alone. A paradise of plenty where nobody lacks. We all flying around with our own jetpacks. Yeah,